Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to bleep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. some wide lapel collars and some artificial material and make it into a leisure suit. It's the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Woo. And we are happy to have you here for another week. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And uh, we are going to have a fun show uh, today. It is just, it is old. We had four people on screen and in your ears last week. So today we're cutting that in half and we're just going to do OG movie show with Joel and Ryan with Joel and Ryan and you and you yeah and you the listener um thin crust variety yep (laughs) uh and gluten-free um that's so uh yeah we're super thrilled to have you uh joining us for another week um and uh yeah and I hope boy I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's show Hmm. um a favorite I, of ours for sure that yeah i i was uh i was kind of buzzing on that show for a good day or two after we I, I had so much fun chris fitchett was such uh such a super guest and it was it was so awesome having someone who actually participated in you know in that whole era and, and was part of that whole scene yeah. Um, and as was... knowledgeable as, and, and, it, it, you know, uh, insightful as he was, he, he did a, us a real favor too, which is he let you and me and Michael be, be ourselves. And, I, you know, so I think that, that all that magic happened in that episode. It was really, really fantastic. Yeah. There was one little bit that, uh, I, I think Chris kind of wanted to get out and we, we were, yep. If you guys have watched last week's episode, the Osploitation episode, um, we we got by the end of it, we were <laughs> we were in full it, on, yeah, it, like it was... drunken argument mode. You know, nobody was drinking that I'm aware of, but it just it it turned into that sort of crazy free for all that happens when you're talking about these things with friends and you have minor disagreements and you like to get a little worked up about them just because it's fun to get riled right. up about stuff. Uh, well, and as I shared, you know, as I, as I shared to Chris, I'm like, Chris didn't know that he was essentially going to take a trip back to <laughs> the dorm rooms back in 1995. Right. Well, uh, he, he didn't even where... know that our, that he was joining on for a radio show. You know, he thought we were just going to ask him questions and then edit him into some sort of thing. So I was telling him when you guys were, off getting ready or doing your oh, pre, really? pre-production oh, work he's like so you're not doing any editing and I, I told him I said like hey well we reserve the right to do editing but no if it all goes according to plan it you're, you're on the radio it's just we're just all talking and that 
that's what podcast listeners, I, in my experience, greatly prefer. I think if you're, I think you lose something when you sort of chop things up into pieces and stuff, you know, unless, unless you're really, really good at that sort of thing. So he rolled with that really great too, but he didn't get to, and I'll let him use his words here. Joel's going to roll the tape here, but we just wanted to revisit that episode real quick. You know, thank him again and thank Michael again for coming on. And it was so much fun. Uh, and this was a, just, you know, the, we don't have the video of it, but my tape kept rolling at home and I captured this little extra part of the conversation with Chris and with Michael and me talking about the films that Michael hadn't seen. I think it's worth playing. So, yeah, because we had talked and we had talked so glowingly and, and it was such a small community of people that were so that were involved in this yeah. um and 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 then you know it, it was goofy and as chris i'll let i'll let chris uh right at the top of the sounder here um chris explains why he sort of waited until <laughs> right. uh, until after we we stopped so uh all right so this is just a little revisit post show of last week's ozploitation episode so here we go uh, the only thing i didn't mention and I wasn't sure about the tone because we were having so much fun, <laughs> is when I talked about those filmmakers being a previous generation, mm. Richard Franklin died at the age of 59, Everett DeRoach died at the age of 68, and Colin Eggleston died at the age of 60. Oh, wow. Yeah. Too fast. We're mainly talking about her. Uh, they're all born 941, 46, 48. But they died... So young. Everett DeRoach would have, in the last, he died six years ago, or seven years ago. He would have written 70 screenplays. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought about that a little bit too when I, especially when I saw that, uh, that Everett DeRoach has passed away, you know, in 2014 or whatever. You know, and it's like that he's got six grandchildren or something like that, that he leaves. Six children. Oh, six children, and countless and grandchildren. Count, and probably, I would yeah, guess several grandchildren then, and grandchildren. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, yeah, I hope that um, I you know yeah this ended up this kind of ended up being a deep dive into Everett Deroche. Uh, Basically, I guess yeah. Uh, well, we yeah, didn't, so. and it's funny because we didn't. Obviously, we pay attention to the names behind the films on the show, but we didn't until we yeah. put the list together. We didn't. I didn't see that they were all the same guy. We yeah, we really did it yeah. based on the films. You know, it wasn't. Yeah, we were trying to catch a, a get a sampling of of the the whole genre as well yeah, as yeah. and keep it era really specific. Like I said, yeah. golden age of exploitation because it yeah. certainly is a it's a thing that lives on to this day. No question, mm-hmm. Michael yeah. mentioned a couple of them, but, but wow. he never got the, he never got the recognition in Australia that you know that he really. For example, I think he was nominated for awards, but he never won an award. For best screenplay or oh, wow, etc. So, um, and that's one of the reasons Richard Franklin left Australia to obviously for his career. But then he came back later. He came back and did adaptations of two plays, which his theory was you could do uh, for low budget because it was basically people talking. But mm-hmm. so for someone who went from road games to it was called Hotel Sorrento and Brilliant Lies, they were adaptations of plays. They were like film. Wow. Well, and just last, or I guess it's more like three years ago now, but Russell Mulcahy made the 
the uh, in like Flynn film, the the oh. Errol Flynn biopic, which right. I don't I don't know how great a movie that was, but it was inspired. The story was interesting. Yeah, it was young Errol Flynn. Young Errol Flynn before he was a star, yeah. when he was an adventurer. Adventuring Tasmania, going to New Guinea, etc. Yeah, I, I thought that was really cool. I had no idea. As a bit of biography, I think it's it's a bit of a bait and switch. They sell it as a fun adventure movie, and it really is sort of a dark, believable adventure story in a way that's not always fun, like the movies are fun, which is the point of the thing, I think. But I thought it was a cool film. So yeah. be before we break, give yeah. me... Okay, so Harlequin, yeah, Treasure, Slash Race... Turkey shoot and sky pirates, which I tried to find. Sky pirates is going to be tough. It's for you not to find. there. It's not yeah, even fine. So out of those other three, what is the what's the order? I sh what's priority? Harlequin, I think, has got to be. Yeah, Yankee Zephyr, and then uh, and then, then Turkey, then turkey shoot. So basically, as we yeah. talked about them. Or if you really want to be smart about it, I would watch it like this because I don't always put together double features, and I think I'm pretty good at it in terms of what is best. I would watch Turkey Shoot first. I would follow it up with Harlequin, and then I would use Yankee Zephyr as a palate cleanser because that's I, okay. a conventional, fun, yes. easy to watch movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that would that would be my order if you're going to watch them all. That's not the and, order of quality because necessarily. I, because but. I just watched them. Uh, Turkey Shoot and Harlequin are available on Amazon Prime. And there we go. Yeah. So we want <laughs> little extra <laughs> we, conversation. Then. Yeah. We got to, we, we'll find out what Michael uh, thinks of those. Uh, <laughs> we'll do know, some follow up with Michael. We got tentatively him coming up for a couple episodes in May yep. that we're excited about. So, oh, they, those are going to be, yeah. We'll yeah. see. Just to te tease that, we're, we're going to have <laughs> a couple episodes dealing with a spectacular uh, a, a topic that we're all inordinately passionate about mm -hmm. so it should mm -hmm. be fun um all right so uh again thank you so much to chris fitchett for coming on and for michael for putting us in touch with him and uh being also part of the show yeah, yeah. uh so yeah go ahead give if you haven't listened to last week's show uh i'm gonna keep i'm gonna keep telling you to listen to it because uh i think it was uh a really super fun couple hours um okay so today Today, we are going to take a trip back to, uh, well, like just the, at the very beginning of one of the golden ages of cinema. Now, we on the movie show with Joel and Ryan, uh, you know, we always say we try to talk about films that sort of have happened in our lifetime. We try to, you know, we, we try to cap things. Um, and uh, I think it happens naturally actually i mean we don't have any hard and fast rule that we can't talk about anything we want but we tend to evaluate there, there really was a paradigm shift in cinema in the late 60s going into the senate 70s for about 10 years a full mm -hmm. decade it's not quite just the 70s but that's yeah. 67 to 77 from the graduate to star wars Star Wars, yeah. obviously, Jaws, but Star, but Star Wars really was this paradigm shift into, to some degree, what we're still living in that same era of cinema. Not completely, but to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, but 
it, this is an era, it's era specific and it's a few things that drop by the wayside. We're not going to talk about Godfather or any of that. None of the big, big seminal films. There, although there's a couple here that are quite iconic to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, this is, I've stumbled across these because these have been, these movies have been the l- slowest to get taken care of, to get put out, to get restored so that you could watch them properly. And I have waited on most of them for that reason. And now they're here and they've got, they've been remastered for, you know, for streaming and for broadcast and, and they've got discs out that you can buy or hunt down. And so they're, 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 they're back in a cool way, in a way where, Mm -hmm. You know, it's throughout the '80s and '90s, these films weren't easy to watch in a nice way. So, yep. So today, we are going to take a trip. This is the movie show with Joel and Ryan's way back celebration of the '70s. <laughs> You're the friends. Yep. All right. So, yeah. So, as Ryan said, we're going to kind of, it's it's 68-ish. There's a couple here that, uh, yeah. Yeah, the oldest here from one is 69, and nine, I think there's yeah. there but, might be one from 78 that's snuck on here, too. Mm-hmm. That, and, that's, but, yeah, they're, but this is, yeah, this is all, like, early, mid-70s here. And just, and frankly, just like all great 70s films, the 70s actually loves the 1600s baby (laughs) as a weird group a couple of movies to start out with but these were the two that i started out with so you can tell kind of where my head's at i wanted to experience you know this Mm -hmm. old school epic storytelling right so i'll let you start out with the first one i can't remember which one we picked but yeah the first one is uh, both of these are from 1970 and uh the first one is the historical drama Cromwell. Yeah, these are both like 50s. Like this is the studios hanging on to the old 50s storytelling style, the big cinerama historical ad- adventures and dramas. Um Cromwell Richard Harris plays Oliver Cromwell and it's about the obviously the overthrow of um can't remember the name of the king, Charles? Was it one of the Charleses? Played by uh, yes, it is uh, the first Charles the um, first played brilliantly mm-hmm. by uh, Alec Guinness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not super historically accurate. It 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 uh, it sort of it really um, funnels some really complicated politics and stuff into a, sort of a very simplified grievances between. In this case, the rich guys who were in Parliament and uh, the royal family, because this it's often viewed at least they, they get this part right. That time in history is often viewed of some uprising of the people, but it just Duke of this Sir that deciding that they wanted to be a republic and 
um, and over one specific sort of incident, they they broke with the king of England. Um, and very famously, as soon as they won that battle, spoiler alert for, you know, the <laughs> uprising, but uh, they they wanted to institute another head of state immediately. You know, America did the same thing. I don't know if you guys know this. In the American Revolution, the first suggestion was to make george washington king Mm -hmm. they just the people of even that era couldn't they couldn't they had a hard time imagining some other kind of thing you know what i mean even once they had achieved it uh they got rid of what they felt was a tyrant and now it's like well who should the next tyrant be it's it's, it's really fun to watch that part of this movie um, it, and it's great, big, bold, the battle scenes in it, of which there are a few are pretty cool, but, the it's the rallies and the speeches and stuff. It's, it's that stuff that is really kind of amazing. And the music, it does have a, like a seventies folk song sort of sensibility to it to some degree, but it, it mostly, once it gets rolling, it's an old school English chamber drama, but there aren't that many movies made about the the you know that era and of course it it didn't last very long either it's it's a complicated ugly time there there was a fellow actor set came up to richard harris and said you no self-respecting irishman should ever play oliver cromwell in a movie and you know richard laughed that off because he was his campaign in ireland was brutal and resulted in thousands of deaths Mm. um but Richard saw the thing more allegorical. He he sees it as this man of principle who really, he, the script at least shows that he's he's not he doesn't want to rule England. He he really he really resists every step of the way overthrowing the king. He sees that as a, a bad idea in general, but eventually because of his principles, he's sort of forced to do it, and then he's kind of forced to turn on his compatriots when they decide <laughs> right the scene where they're like we need a head of state you've said this yourself like it's near the end and the exasperation and frustration and the harris plays it really really good yeah. and it's fun to see richard harris was a fantastic actor who was drunk for most of the 60s and 70s and mm-hmm. doesn't really remember making a lot of these movies and stuff but it the era is punctuated usually the bigger the role the more focused and the more integrity he sort of brings to it because if he's just brought in to be some guy who wisecracks to clint eastwood or whatever he, he just he just does whatever I mean, you can just tell he's right. winging it in this film it's a really wonderful performance he he used to scream his voice raw each day so that there be a a noticeable audio contrast between how he spoke and Alec Guinness's uh what did he call it melodicism I think is yeah. the word he used cuz Alec you know Obi-Wan he's he's got that smooth yeah he's got a very smooth timber to his voice yeah it, yeah if you think of Ewan McGregor just think of him doing the <laughs> impression of that because yeah. it's so unlike Ewan's normal voice it, it's very very cool so it was a cool movie. I was su- kind of surprised by how cool it was. Um, but it it is a as far as history lessons go, it's it's really oversimplifies things to 
in an attempt to create some sort of David Lean-esque, you know, there's a meaning behind this that, it, yeah. you know, it's not, what's the, what's the one with Henry VIII and Thomas More? I can't remember the name of that movie, but, or the, it's a play really. Yeah. Man, man of All Seasons? Or? Yeah, The Man for All Seasons, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that right? Yeah, Man, man for All Seasons. Pretty okay, sure. <laughs> just checking. Um. Because I get that and a different movie mixed up all the time. Not the movies, but the names. Um, there's a real lesson in that. There's this, it's a, we're teaching you a, a thing. A, a, we're teaching you something based on principle here. And this movie goes for that. And it's, it, it was just too messy a thing, I think, in reality for it to coalesce into a, but, uh, just based on the sum of its parts, it's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm just in reading some of the stuff here. Uh, they did when they when in the release of the movie, the PR and everything for the uh, for the movie all was like there was ten years of research. I go, oh, it's going in, and then um, like the people who <laughs> saw it, who were actual historians, were like, what? what? No. Not exactly. <laughs> Not not really no um so but yeah it's uh it is it is and we're not just space. talking about like consolidating battles and this and that because yes. that they get totally wrong but you can't really hold that against the movie they it's the 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 politics of it are simplified it's just it's just yeah. there's no way around it it's as simple as that yep um, um and cromwell's not known as a particularly good ruler or you know the, he had a lot of issues that the film mm -hmm. sort of it certainly doesn't play uh, King Charles as some sort of crazy man who needs to be re removed. It, you know, it, 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 it's nuanced in that way, in a character way. But in, a, it, in trying to have a unifying theme, it, it eskews a lot of the reality of the situation, mm -hmm. I guess. It, um, yeah, I, it, Mark Rylance uh, starred PBS, uh, or B the BBC, I believe, did a uh, um, production called Wolf Hall. It was based on yeah, Wolf Hall's that is Henry the Eighth though. That's later, much, or is it earlier? No, that, no, much earlier. Yeah, it's the rise of Oliver Crom. It's Cromwell. Um, no, what was he what plays was? Thomas Cromwell, which is a different Cromwell. Altogether. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Cromwell, uh, along with Cardinal Wolsey, the two kind of main political advisors to. Henry VIII when he separated from the Roman Catholic Church. That's right. Um, all right. Okay. Uh, and next up, uh, you know, keeping, uh, you know, full-on 70s groovy hip, um, we're going to do – it's not ABBA's Waterloo, no. but it is the movie Waterloo. In, in, in the internet database, there's a piece of trivia that was like, this film was released four years before ABBA's Waterloo, so it's not to be confused <laughs> with that. And I'm like, who, did you really write that? I mean, who who would go – who would be so bold as to add their own movie trivia to a, even a wiki trivia page like this? And be so stupid about something. I just was kind of flabbergasted by that. <laughs> and yet four people found that comment helpful. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Because yeah. clearly someone was 68 like... found it not helpful, but four yeah. found it helpful. So I love that. Yeah. Somebody was clearly like, when are they going to mention Agneta? 
Oh no! This is the movie. I see. Okay. Oh, it's. I get it. Okay, I okay. understand. Yeah. So, Click. Uh, helpful. This movie, much more than Cromwell. This movie blew my mind. <laughs> blew my mind. This is an incredible film. I don't. I don't want to get into like it's this great film because it's lacking certain things that you need to be a great film, but. It, the story of Waterloo is uh, Dino De Laurentiis, of all people. Of course, it's D Dino. We bring mm -hmm. him up on the show all the time. It wants to direct this film of the ultimate fall of of uh, Napoleon in his second campaign in at Waterloo, which is in Belgium, I believe. Is that right? Uh, I think so. Um, you know, and. It it's it, they didn't know how to do it, and it, the, what happened was the Union Soviet Socialist Republic Film Bureau stepped up and offered to let them make it there. This is crazy in 1970. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, not the most iconic era of the Cold War, but it, it very much in the heart of it in the nuclear era. Um, they, they agreed to, to do this. And what the Russian government did in the Russian film industry was they, they, you, they donated to 4,000 or something soldiers that they dressed up in these uniforms and stuff. And they, they, they did all this basically for nothing. They did it for free. There was no, you know, say what you want about 70s communism, but there was no sense of we need to make money on this. They weren't used to making money on their own films. They were considered a service to the people. So so you get these production values for the time that are off the hook. Millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of battle scenes and costuming and props and Mm -hmm. Days and days and days of shooting with this massive amount of people who are all being fed and taken care of. Uh, it just is—it's just stunning, and it—I've never seen live-action battle s sequences like this. It has, bar none, the most impressive version of this in any film made ever with actual people. And and I'll why not? I'll just throw in all CGI battles too, because they, why not? This is. It's real. It's incredible to look at. There are these crazy aerial shots and um, huge aerial shots where the human carnage just goes on and on and on. And you get this looking at a map sense of strategy of the whole thing. Like, it just took my breath away. The film is, you know, Chris... Dino De Laurentiis thinks this film didn't do very well because it was a big flop. It could have been a colossal flop had they actually paid out what you see on screen, but well over half the budget was just donated by the Russian government, so or the Soviet government. So it wasn't that big a flop because it wasn't that much a big outlay of the actual people producing the film. Mm -hmm. But it just... this. This the wheel had turned, and Cromwell and Waterloo, and there's a few more we'll talk about here as we go forward. This just was not the kind of movie the kids were into anymore. Right. They just it just right. absolutely wasn't. So none of these from this era, Nicholas and Alexander. There's this whole list of these, the dying era of that historical epic. 
you know, and they, it died for real. It died until they made Braveheart, basically. I mean, there are no 80s historical epics that I can think of. Maybe there's one hidden in there somewhere, but not mm-hmm. of this scale and this style until the... I mean, Stripes, the way Stripes captured that, uh, you know, that, that prison break from behind of course. the... Uh, yeah, know. Stripes aside, though. Yeah, yeah but that's a good right, example right. of the exception. That's the exception <laughs> that makes the rule. Um, um it's a, yeah. it's just stunning. Christopher uh, um, Plummer Plummer yeah, plays uh, what's the name of the guy? Uh, uh, um, it is where's my cast list? Christopher uh, is uh, Arthur Wellesley. Wellesley, of course, you know the guy who defeated Napoleon. Um, he's it's yeah, all Rod- stiff upper British upper lip. Like if there, it's if these characters that are running the stuff for England are I- impenetrable. They're in a great way because they really do represent that gentleman's, you know, war bringers in this way that it was really very true of the time. Everything is decorum and everything's this. <laughs> it's just like, uh, it's amazing. There's a scene where to motivate his troops, Napoleon rides through the front lines on his horse. You know, we've seen this in a lot of different movies from a lot of different eras. And there's this guy behind him and he's like, he's like, sir, uh, as the emperor has shown himself, may we have permission to fire a shot? And and Plummer doesn't even look at him. He just goes, and I don't even remember the exact line, sorry, but it's basically, it's like, absolutely not. You know, like that's, yeah. what uncivilized idea is that? Mm-hmm. Forget that yeah. it could have saved thousands and thousands of lives if they would have killed him. Yep. It just, the idea of the, the break in decorum is completely intolerable to a guy like Wellesley. It's really, I find that enjoyable. There's nothing I love better than, than, than English stiff upper lip stoicism. And, and I just, I, I find it incredibly amazing. I just, I always find it psychologically super interesting and whenever it shows up on screen, a lot of people are like, oh, it's wooden or, oh, they don't, you know, he doesn't give the big speech or whatever. Right. Which he doesn't, but it's it's still outstanding performance. And Rod, I thought, Rod, he, although I guess it gained a lot of criticism, I thought Rod Steiger as uh, Napoleon was fantastic. Yeah, it's got a great, it's got a really great cast. Uh, you know, you mentioned Christopher Plummer and Rod Steiger, Orson Welles playing yeah. King Louis the Eighteenth, uh, getting his million bucks on for yep. about four minutes of screen time. Yeah, Rupert Davies. Uh, looking at some of the other Dan O'Hurley. Jack Hawkins is in it. Jack Hawkins. Yeah. Uh, Jack um, Hawkins lost his voice in the late '60s, and and. Uh, they the British film industry was very cool. They kept casting him and stuff, and just overdubbing him, which we wouldn't do that today. No, yeah. That we were not super into overdubbing people today, anyway. But it, whereas back then that was very common. Um, the, uh, he was overdubbed Russian... in this film by Robert Riety, who's one of the uh, maybe the all time greatest voice talent behind the scenes of this style of movie. Mm. Um, and apparently he did 40 or something speaking parts because they, during the battle scenes, they really had no usable audio of any kind. And the battle scenes are really, really extensive. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, before, yeah, real quick. I, I, I can't remember if you said the amount. It's 15,000 extras that were. Yeah, I believe it. It's on screen. 
and it's the uh, and it's apparently it still is the record for most amount of extras in a movie. Um, just... And uh, before the Russian financing, before the whole th- everything with the with the uh, USSR came in, the Soviets uh, apparently uh, Dino De Laurentiis ha- uh, wanted or at least was in talks to have John Huston direct this one. Uh, a good fit. Been, Although yeah, that would have been yeah. that would have been really interesting. That would have been, although it's directed within an inch of its life by whoever directed it. Who's the... Sergei Bondarchuk. There you go. I mean, it really is a spectacle on a scale of which... Mm -hmm. And even just the scenes at court and the early scenes, there's a a ballroom scene uh, where just a few nights before the English officers are hanging out with their aristocratic wives and stuff, and it's this moving camera just gorgeous thing the film is superficial super superficial but that when you achieve visual spectacle on this scale um who cares it just it doesn't matter it's just it's mm-hmm. very it's and it's not a three hour long beast of a film it's to touch over two hours and it goes by quick and i if you get a chance to see waterloo and this is your t- kind of thing i highly recommend it it just is amazing very cool. All how many right, so bodies next... can you fit? I mean, that's the, the task. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many clowns can you get in a Volkswagen Beetle? How many people can you get in a, even a Panavision frame, even in a helicopter or on a hill in the distance? It's, it's it, it like Joel said, you feel it breaking these records repeatedly as you're watching yeah. it. And the fact that they're people, you know, you compare it to, and I love these movies, but you compare it to like the opening to fellowship of the ring where they're not people and it the difference is profound it is profound yeah. what the the awe that realism brings to the party and it's just a reminder of that right you know, like I, I think of the scene in gone with the wind uh where it's panning back and you know it's it's yeah. it's the carnage after uh uh, you, you know, it, it's the I'll never go hungry again speech. Right, right. Um, and it's, you know, and it's just a, a sea of people, but you can tell that most of them are just uh, like that are, they're just dummies that are just, you know, lazy. you can kind of tell that's still an impressive shot from the, hit, yeah, from the history so of movies. Like, but, but yeah, yes. I mean, I think that was, I mean, and, and that was probably, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, off the top of my head, I, I you know, I'm sure D.W. Griffith and uh, uh, um, Cecil B. DeMille, I'm sure some of their big giant epics, they had, yeah. you know, big pullback scenes and stuff like that too. But that's the one that I really remember as sort of like the first time seeing this sort of look at the scale of of war, yeah. you know, or at least the carnage of yeah, war. war. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, all right, so the very next year we get um, a movie uh, called The Last Valley. This one Michael I won't. Kane. You, get to, you get to do your Michael Kane. No, I don't because Michael Kane <laughs> speaks with a German accent in this film. Oh, bummer. No, that's incredible. At some point, Michael no, Kane's like. It's a bummer that we don't get to, I get to hear oh, your Michael Kane. You don't get Kane to hear my impression. Michael Kane? Yeah. Uh, I can't do Can Michael, do Kane. Michael Kane doing I can't German do Michael Kane doing German. I just can't do it. <laughs> um, so it's, sorry. It's the, he'll come up again in yeah. this show and in the future. Um, <laughs> he it, that's part of what's cool about this. You know, Michael Kane in Zulu, where he plays a, an aristocrat. It's very weird listening to Michael Kane with the with Christopher Plummer's voice, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. 
in this, he plays a German mercenary during the Thirty Years' War. There are, that I'm aware of, no films about the Thirty Years' War but this. <laughs> and in that way alone, it's sort of significant. There's, it's... But the fun thing is with this film is that it's it's this is a profound film. I was I was kind of amazed by it. It's a little old fashioned, but it is not. It's the opposite of Waterloo. It's not meant to be about war. It's the last valley is this valley that because of its remoteness is untouched by the the carnage of this war, where the, all the lords are fighting, and it's ostensibly was a war about between Christianity and, or between, you know, the Reformation, Lutherans and whatever, mm -hmm. and uh, Catholics, but it just wasn't. It was about grudges between rich people and they're using their serfs. It was about fighting men, uh, being able to sell their their services to the highest bidder. That's the kind of character that Cain plays in it. Um but he has this, he comes into this town and his first instinct isn't to sack the town, which is what you do. You ride into a town, kill everybody there, rape all the women, take all the riches and move on to the next town. Mm -hmm. And it almost didn't matter if the town was Catholic or was whatever. It didn't, you just, it, this was just destruction going on all around them because of the remoteness of this village. Um... And because winter is coming, Cain decides or is partly convinced not to sack the town and to just hang out there. So then all these weird relationships start brewing between, uh, well, primarily between uh, uh, Omar Sharif, who is, again, Omar Sharif's really, really good. And this is the kind of character where he's a really modern actor for maybe not... 71 or whatever but mm -hmm. just watch him through the years he he watch him compared to peter o'toole watch him compared to charlton Heston. Yeah. he's just this natural modern actor you know we talked a little bit about richard burton he's a little bit more uh de demonstrative as an actor but he also very he just feels like a guy that could be in a movie today and you would accept it stephen boyd i've got a whole list of favorites who aren't necessarily the huge stars of the day but were awesome and would fit in today's acting style omar is the prince of that style of acting mm -hmm. he's just outstanding and him and michael kane are fantastic together they're arguing about the philosophy of war and it, it's it's a deep movie with a lot of meaning with a lot of really tragic awful terrible things that happen in it you know what the cost of the thing was is it, it it's laid out really really good for you this was a film i'd never heard of never heard of until kino lorber put it out on blu-ray and i was like look it's like a widescreen historical film with with michael kane and omar sharif and who's the english actor who plays the sort of mayor of the town or the head rich guy of the town really good actor from Not, uh, nigel davenport yeah nigel davenport he's also mm -hmm. outstanding he's kind of the they're, the women play an important role in this film too, but he's kind of the, the, it's the three guys and their various ambitions and plans that the thing rotates around. Yeah. Uh, it's, I don't know what to say. I hopefully I've sold it. Well, it's a yeah, thoughtful I mean, film. There are not a bunch of battles in it. There's certainly violence in it, but there, it's not a war movie. And that also surprised me because I was expecting more of the same. And 
it isn't that at all. It's 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 something much more meditative and interesting, and I I adored it for that reason. Very cool. Yeah. Um. All right. Next up is <laughs> one of my favorite character names. Uh. It. Uh, <laughs> Boone. The the story of Boone Hagenbeck in the rivers. The Reavers. The Reavers. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, the Reavers. Again, I won't say much about this either. The, the Reavers is based on a William Faulkner novel. Uh, it's a and it's an interesting time capsule of you know Faulkner who was writing in the early twentieth uh, century, and a film shot in nineteen seventy one about that sort of topic. It's sort of mm-hmm. the same reaction you have, I think, watching like a Mark Twain adaptation from the same era. There's this. Um, Faulkner and Twain compared to the authors of their time. And even in, I think even by modern standards were enlightened with regards to sexual politics and with regards to racial politics, both of which were really, really sensitive things at the time they were writing. And as you know, and are sensitive to this day, this is always tricky stuff to take on. Um, one of the neat things about this film is that this, this one of the central relationships between Steve McQueen and his traveling buddy, who's uh, uh, you know an African American, is they're at each other's throats all the time, and so the N word is being dropped, and all this stuff is happening, and that may ruffle some feathers with modern sensibilities. But it, the incredible thing between the two guys is that they really. While McQueen's character knows that his sidekick isn't his equal in society, he still treats him like his friend who can punch him out, who can steal his car, who can do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know what I mean? And they work it out together. Like, that's interesting to me. It's also a sort of a weird coming of age story where the two of them bring this kid to uh, Kansas. No, where are they even? Some big town, uh, relatively. Kansas City, I want to say. Um, Memphis. Memphis. Okay, Memphis. there you go. So, uh, and he gets to experience prostitution and gambling and alcohol <laughs> stuff for the first time. And yet the whole thing, it's narrated by Burgess Meredith. It has a yeah. fucking brilliant early John Williams musical score. Really why yeah. really elevates the film um it's good it's a good movie but it it always is weird when you travel back it's watching the musical version of huck finn you know from that era that i talked about many episodes ago it you feel queasy over the racial stuff that's going on in these films the the 70s-ness of them is weird and the mm-hmm. 1905-ness of them is weird. It's like, yeah. you, you know what I mean? You, but both things working on you is really interesting to me. You know, uh, storytelling, especially comedy, but storytelling's not evergreen. And I try, you know, sometimes I find stuff objectionable. And sometimes you can kind of say, well, think about what this is and the intention behind this. And sometimes... You can't. And this movie, you could. It's an interesting movie. There's, they don't film Faulkner very much because even though he's a master novelist, uh, it, people into literature and stuff think he's, it, some of them think he's the best American novelist ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but his novels are so 
based on language and it, you know what I mean? It, it's like, it's tough to get on screen. And I would say that the Reavers is a pretty good, I mean, a pretty accomplished yeah. way they did it. And it's one of Faulkner's, even though it's got plenty of like stuff in it, I just said, it's one of his winsome sort of looking back. It's from a child's point of view. Uh, you know, the child, even though the child gets in a knife fight and all this stuff happens, it's like, you know, it's still Burgess Meredith's. It, it, it almost plays like, a, um, I don't know. It, it yeah. plays like this sweet memoried coming of age story. It's interesting. That's not what all of Faulkner is about. So that part made it interesting to me. It was made by former actor, Mark Rydell, who we're going to talk about his, another film that he made around the same time. Yep. Uh, you're, and and uh, th this was, you mentioned John Williams uh, and the score and we, Ooh. you know, we love to talk about John Ooh. Williams and, it, and it's, here it comes, this baby. Was, uh, this was uh, his, um, his Western he, score really well, no, is I only mean, one that the, I'm the, aware the, of. The, the, the Reavers was, uh, he, he was nominated for uh, an Academy Award uh, and uh, Rupert Cross as Ned, uh, was also nominated for an Academy Rupert Cross, the African American gentleman I'm talking about. Who I don't, yep. I I seen him in one other thing, but he, yep. for a guy who got an Oscar nomination for that film, it it's weird that he, he was the he was the first African American nominated for best supporting actor, I believe. Mm -hmm. I think you're right on that. Yeah. Um, but obviously uh, not the first African American nominated and mm -hmm. not the first to win, but in that category, he was the first. Yep. Next up, yes, uh, again, yeah, we uh, mentioned um, this is John Williams's uh, Western score. Western score. But, and uh, as good as the Reavers score is, this yeah. score. Yeah, and it's uh It's like worthy of Aaron Copeland, for real. Yeah. It's stunningly good music. It's amazing. It's yep. just 1972, The Cowboys. Yeah, The Cowboys is a John Wayne movie. Just a tip mm -hmm. for everybody out there. If you're ever going to buy a John Wayne movie, my recommendation is that you buy it from eBay. Because just searching for a John Wayne movie on Amazon will have Amazon trying to sell you John Wayne movies for the next two decades. And probably any other John Wayne paraphernalia will start. Pop Damn up. you cookies. Actually, you can go back in your search history and delete it. You could do that. But they, I'm just saying it's be careful because I've got I think four John Wayne movies. I'm hardly a John Wayne fan. I mean, yeah. And I don't even, but, and it's funny because the ones I have are like the longest day and this one, they're not even the ones where you'd say, Oh, those are his best must have John Ford, whatever movies. Yeah. They're this weird sort of sidetracked films of his. Um, about to get in harm's way. Thank you, Dr. Maz. We appreciate it. Um, that's coming out this summer. But this, The Cowboys, is the story of this rancher who all of his ranch hands have left him for another richer rancher. And he's got to do this cattle drive. And he gets it in his head. It takes a while to convince him, but he gets it in his head that he can do it with these kids basically these roughly 12 year old ish children mm -hmm. and he teaches them and it's really fun john wayne again mark rydell who made the reavers and who made this he feels like he's an old-fashioned filmmaker but he's a very young man when he was making these films and he isn't an old-fashioned filmmaker he really is the new breed of 70s filmmaker and he brings that sort of um 
feel to the thing, and yet you still have a Western with John Wayne, and Bruce Dern plays the bad guy in it, and the kids, a couple of the kids have gone on to be, uh, you know, I don't want to, guess I don't want to say stars, but accomplished actors, Robert Carradine, A. Martinez is in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Amazing to see him in a film of this type. He's really, really great. Um, The kids are fantastic, very real on screen, and, and... and the music just takes you away and the sort of breathtaking shots of the cattle drive. And it's a it's an old-fashioned film with a sort of devastating twist to it, which I won't spoil. But I think a lot of people maybe know the Cowboys. But I think even mm-hmm. people who aren't John Wayne fans can look at this and see that it's more than a John, another John Wayne Western. And John Wayne knew this. It's a comment on the Western genre, basically from a, with a very modern sensibility. And I really like it for that. I think it was, uh, some famous film critic was all like, this isn't the story of, this isn't a coming of age story. It's about the story of a bunch of kids turning into cold blooded murderers. Well, <laughs> I don't remember who wrote that. I wish I could, I guess I, it's good that I can't cause then I can't blame anybody for saying that, but it's a famous critic who's a big pussy, by the way, because it, it is that, but, you know, welcome to the Old West. I mean, what movies have you been watching, dude? You know, it is that, but that's kind of awesome, too. I, I really like The Cowboys, and I had never seen it until just a few years ago. I knew it pretty well. I'd seen bits of it on television, so I knew the twist. But John Wayne, Bruce Dern, um, name a couple of the other adults that are in it. Uh, uh, sorry, I was, I was trying to find that critic. I think the critic that said that um, might have been um, um, where. Oh, I just had it. It's the guy TikToks. who Leonard. It's the guy who publishes all those movie. Oh, was it Leonard books. Malton said that? I'm, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, Roscoe Lee Brown. Oh, he's great in it. Yeah, Slim Pickens. Of course. Uh, What's a western without Slim Pickens? Right, uh, Lonnie Chapman. Yeah. So. You know, really good stuff, really good stuff. Uh, And John Wayne was really, apparently, you know, it was a different type of project for him. He he jumped his cue on a really complicated river crossing scene when cameras weren't rolling. And and this was early on in shooting where they were doing all the kind of complicated stuff first. That's what you... That's kind of how you do these. And then you break it down to scenes once everybody knows each other and, you know, has some chemistry together. Um, and Rydell just in front of the world and everybody just ripped him to pieces, <laughs> John Wayne, <laughs> you know, and Wayne was like, he went away and, uh, what's the story? Rydell's like, and, and the crew and a couple of the actors kept coming up to me and they were like, Hey, it was good working with you. You know, cause they just assumed he was going to be fired the next day. <laughs> yep. And yeah, Wayne came back to work run. on time you the next day run, and, and was like, hey, you know, privately, but still, hey, you know, you were right to do that. I just want you to know that I'm really excited to be in the movie and all this. You know, he, he, it was, it, in the character too, this part of this lives in the character. He's a bit of a humbled guy. And I love that about it. And it, it, there's stories upon stories of the shooting of this. Him and he was challenging Bruce Dern constantly, and Bruce Bruce was up to the challenge. He would not sort of back down from Wayne's thing. And so this, the the confrontations that the two have in the film is fantastic because of that. You really feel that it's not tension. It's you almost feel like they're buddies challenging each other, even though there's real danger in those scenes. Yeah. 
Um, so I just, it's it's an unsung film. Mark Rydell should be proud of himself. That's a yeah. really cool f- movie, and it's not a, your standard John Wayne fare. And yet it kind of is too. You, you kind of get the best of both worlds with it. Yeah. And if you've never many, heard, many go to that, YouTube yeah. right now. If you've never heard John Williams' theme to the Cowboys. Oh yeah. It's special um, music. I got to see him with the Boston Pops play that suite. It's about nine minutes long. You don't have to listen to the whole nine minutes, but I got to hear him play that live, and it was just knocks you out. Very cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Next up from 1973, Scarecrow. Uh, another movie that I've seen on the video shelves for years and years and years, but for whatever reason, I didn't rent this when I was a kid. You know, there was a time when I was a kid where I just somewhere when I was a teenager, I'm like, well, I haven't seen these. I got to see the Godfather and I got to send, I just started renting Pacino and Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman movies and Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman movies and just watching them all. And I ran out of gas a little bit with that. Cause you start with the best ones and then you kind of work your way down. And eventually you're like, oh, these, some of these are, these suck. But, but that, it, that goal, truly golden era of Hollywood cinema. This film isn't included in that. It's, a, I guess, it's a much more modest movie. But I should have seen it at that time. Al Pacino and Gene Hackman in a road movie. It really feels like they're hitchhiking during the Depression. But it yeah. it takes place in the current time. It takes place in the early seventies. Um, but it just has this sort of Steinbeck kind of quality to it that is really amazing and and hackman and pacino man I, I don't know what to say they're at their they're at the height of their powers here this is the first movie pacino did after the godfather and the first one he did before he did dog day afternoon and godfather 2 so he's just as good as he ever was period yep. and hackman also you know just was about to do the conversation had just done um uh, french connection so it it just it's right in this magic zone. It's directed by Jerry Schatzberg. It's a more modest film, but Holy Moses is a good the chemistry between those two guys and the pathology and just the brave way they tell this uh, 70s films would tell the stories of these flawed people and sort of let them happen if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. There's this great scene. It's all done in one shot. There's a lot of diner and restaurant scenes as they travel, but the first diner scene is like, it's like a time jump scene. They go from like not wanting to talk to each other and being paranoid of each other to sitting at a diner counter talking about how they're going to open this car wash together. And you don't even see what happens in between. And normally I'd be like, what are you doing? You're robbing us of this great stuff, but it works brilliantly. Yeah. It, uh, just, if you if they have that isolated, I mean, you can just watch that scene out of context. Them at the diner counter, uh, Hackman has this incredible ad lib. You can tell the this waitress keeps coming by and putting everything like out of order and in the wrong place, and they've got to keep reaching over it, each other. And Pacino's kind of doing it like while he's acting, and you can tell Hackman's getting really thrown off by it. And he kind of utters to her, "Is this your first day?" <laughs> <laughs> and it, you can tell that that's based on reality you can tell yeah. that he's annoyed with the actor and yet it plays perfectly with the character as well uh, it, it's just it's scene after scene after scene of that it's a bit of a downbeat film yeah but it's stunning hackman was asked 
what's your favorite movie that you've ever done? He goes, well, he, he gives this sort of rote answer where you can't pick a favorite. They're like your children. Mm-hmm. But there was this film called Scarecrow. And that's, and he dot, dot, dot. He just let it sit there and linger there. And yeah. that was the one he called out by name. He's he's as good in it as he's ever was in anything. Pacino is yeah. a great foil for them. Apparently they were foils in real life. Hackman liked to get real quiet and focus on his work and sort of meditate before a scene started. And Pacino liked to start bouncing off the walls and hype himself up. And the like just the difference between that alone is it's on the screen and it's magical. So I, I highly Scarecrow is, is the best movie or maybe the second best movie on this whole list. It's really, really, really good. And Warner, Warner archives have, have restored it and put it out there. Uh, it's so it's on, there's a Blu-ray of it that looks immaculate. I assume the broadcast version is the Mm -hmm. same version. So um, yeah, find, it's, find uh, that yeah, film. Yeah, this is one that this is one that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I, you know, I'm reading that it it you know won the Grand Prix at at, at Cannes and and then, but yet it didn't it didn't do well. It didn't do well at all. You know, and um, it, which is which is strange. I don't know why movies like it did. You know, yeah. uh, Alice doesn't live yeah. here anymore. These sort of rustic, like they did pretty good. So I'm not sure why this one failed to especially with these two stars in it mm-hmm. because it, it really is the film. I mean, they're not, they're not the stars they became in whatever the eighties or nineties where they were movie stars and they almost couldn't get out of their own way as actors, but they're we're just, we're just in the biggest movies ever just in the previous years. And they were the hottest thing out there. Uh, it should have been great. It should have been great. It's it's, I liked it better than Papillon, which is another, buddy road trip movie that is really yeah. good but i i, I like this relationship better i found it more interesting you know what i mean i just i just thought it was really 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 good both of them both of them listed amongst their favorite performances as i say uh hackman answered if you can only pick one he answered with this and even though it might have been a tense sort of experience for them making it the results are on the screen. It really is special. So, um, all right. So uh, next up, we are going to go uh, back a few years to 1969, and uh, and in going back to 1969, we are going to go oh, way way back to King Henry the Eighth and uh, Anne of a Thousand Days. These are the two Charles Giraud, uh costume dramas. Basically, we yep. got two in a row. Um, and of a thousand days, Richard Burton, we were just talking about him playing Henry the eighth, good role for him. Um, there was criticism at the time. Uh, he's not fat enough or whatever, but if, if John Reese, you know, whatever, who played him in the Tudors can play him, surely Richard Burton in a heavy cloak is good enough for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and it's great because Richard doesn't play him like the clueless bouncy you know, fat, I just want what I want kind of guy. He, he yeah. He's a much more complex character in his hands. But what really surprised me was John Vieve Bujol, a French-Canadian actress who we talked about on the show. We talked about her with Earthquake and Coma, and she was in all kinds of things. She's a good actor. Swashbuckler in our pirate mm-hmm. episode, we talked about her. Um, she's a gorgeous lady, plays Anne Boleyn in, in it, and... 
she's really good in it. You know, I don't, part of what motivated her was Elizabeth Taylor was hanging around talking smack about her on the set, like constantly. <laughs> and yeah. she's just a kid compared to these titans of stage and screen. You know? And apparently she, uh, Taylor insisted on being on the set in the kind of final confrontation between our two heroes and the tower. Just, you know, uh, Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. That's the six mm-hmm. wives of Henry the Eighth. Anne Boleyn was beheaded. Spoiler alert for the film. But uh, <laughs> it, the, um, you know, found guilty of uh, incest and adultery and just asinine charges that totally weren't true. And they, t- to the point that even though the king wanted her, uh, maybe. It's questionable as to whether he really wanted her beheaded, but he wanted her removed. He wanted the marriage yeah. absolved so that he could move on to the next person. That's certain. Um, they were still taking bets. They're, they were so well defended at court in their during their trial, her and her brother, that... And she was so clever about it that they, they, were, they were literally betting on whether they would be found innocent, which, given that the king wanted them found guilty, is, was an absurd thing to be betting on at the time. So right. that's a fun little historical nugget, uh, you know, nugget that I kind of enjoy. Um, it's a good telling of that story. That story's been told many, many times. It's, it's decent. It's an old-fashioned costume drama. It's got all the trappings you'd expect. But the th- thing that really makes it is it's sort of the first version of the story where, uh, where Anne is given a chance to have some sense of herself. Sure. And Jean Vievre carries that wonderfully in that final confrontation with Liz Taylor somewhere off in the shadows behind camera. Jean Vievre goes at him and breaks him on screen. You just can see it. And Burton is a generous enough and excellent enough actor that he lets that happen. There's no sort of movie star dignity that he has to uphold. He responds to it. And it's just mm-hmm. powerful. It's really, really powerful. And so it's worth mentioning for that reason. Um, I've never seen Jean Viev better. I, I enjoy her as an actor because she's easy on the eyes and she plays the emotional reality of the situation like she's just good at, at acting but i've never seen her just take stage amongst these english titans and just so thoroughly dominate them it makes yeah. the whole movie even though it's not written as some sort of feminist manifesto it it lends that point of view to it in an extremely powerful way sure uh originally that role is supposed to be played by olivia hussey yeah, since we uh we brought her up last who, week. Uh, who would have been great because she has a different sort of thing about her that, that it, but it wouldn't have been the same. Olivia Hussey was, would have played the conventional Anne Boleyn from the ballads of yore, the one right. that we're used to that gets caught up in this mess. And you know. um, d- d- Dumb little bit of trivia. She was supposed to play it, and she was also offered uh, to, to be in, um, in True Grit. Uh, and and then she made some under her breath, like the, at a party, and the the producer um, offered her essentially both roles, and he she was like, I don't really see myself with John Wayne. Oof. And the guy was like, Nope, I take them both. I take them back. I take them, I take them back. Lovely. So, um, yeah. So uh, that's a dumb little thing. Uh, but <laughs> next up is uh, Mary Queen of Scots. 
couple years later, same exact crew, you know, director, everything. I We talked about the remake of this that they made a couple years ago on one of our end-of-season shows with uh, Margot Robbie and Saoirse Ronan. And how bummed out and disappointed I was by that movie. <laughs> yeah. um, because that's the kind of movie I really, really want to like, you know. And this was great. It was great to see who it's Gina Rollins. Is that right? Who's the. Uh, no, Vanessa Redgrave. Vanessa Redgrave for sure. Yeah. As. And as Glenn, yeah. and, Glen, and then Glenda, Glenda Jackson. Jackson. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Again, oh, I don't get the right. actors mixed up. I get the names mixed up sometimes. Yeah, I yeah. apologize. Um, wow. Wow. Holy yeah. Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> you know, Saoirse Ronan's as good an actor as his acting today, but I just felt like that film's modern sensibilities just kept getting in its way. Um, a lot like that version of Emma that we talked about. Like, it's not a bad movie by any stretch. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just... It's, yeah. it's just too bold for its own good. It, it doesn't... You don't feel the weight of the times of the thing in it. Because it's sort of this, its own thing. Um, this film, it, it's the same story. It's the exact same story. It, it feels like the script is, a lot of it is the same. It has the yeah. same fantasy of these two characters who surely never met in person. The film culminates with a meeting between them. And the meeting between them in this is, it, it's what it should be. It's what it should have been in that other film. Um Yes, they can relate to each other, surely, as queens of people, but they the they are at odds together. Queen Elizabeth was desperate not to execute Queen Mary. The, her court didn't agree with her. The people sure as hell didn't agree with her. But she just felt a queen killing a queen was was it, then it could happen to any of us. Then what you know, then what am I saying? It was yeah. this you know, she, my cousin, I can't, it, you know, it's a. It, it would be. It would be opening Pandora's box. It's a huge yeah. conscience, a, a crisis of conscience for her, and that is that's in the later version. But in this version, it that that's the whole thing that the film culminates with, and it's just outstanding by those two actors and all the all the guys around them, you know, trying to twist and pull them in all directions, and it, it it's a one. It was a wonderful costume drama. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, terrific. And those two films, different histories, although not dramatically different. You know, the film ends with Anne, you know, before her execution saying, it's it's Elizabeth that will be queen. I've, I've made my mark here. And it, I don't know the exact phrase, but Jean Vieps, like my, the, every drop of my blood spilt will have been worth it or just something. Yeah. Some just rage at the moon speech. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's old fashioned, but yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, so, and then the very next movie, you see her, she, she was right. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> um, all right. So in 1965, there was, uh, a very popular, um, movie called those magnificent men in their flying machines. <laughs> and, um, and so in 69, they, uh, you, you know, they wanted they, to make a movie called Monte Carlo or broke or bust or Monte bust Carlo or bust. <laughs> But in America, you can't call, you can't say you can't have uh, those magnificent men and their flying machines and then, and then follow it with Monte Carlo and Monte Carlo bust. A bus. No, you have to call it those daring young men in their jaunty jalopies. <laughs> Jimmy, just just listening to Jimmy Durante sing 
jalopies, you know, and yeah. the opening theme song is one of the funnest <laughs> things you'll you'll experience. Um, I didn't love those magnificent men and their flying machines. I was impressed by the aerials and stuff, but I thought yeah. it was a little staid, and I thought the sped up Benny Hill like humor was didn't really work on me and and uh but i still liked it i like a big old-fashioned film and there's nothing quite like an aerial race from london to paris or whatever with these plane yeah. these old you know single made out of balsa wood plane and stuff it was <laughs> that was that was interesting this movie though and it's only for a couple of reasons there's only a couple things that differentiate it from that movie um this movie isn't as good or as accomplished but it had me laughing the whole time i laughed and i started watching it going oh my god it gets off to a really bad start it's got this whole prologue sequence i won't say what it is but it's it gets off to a bad start all i can say is hang in there <laughs> when it settles into the race it's actually pretty fun yeah. Uh, the thing that made it so magical, well, one, Tony Curtis, who I'm always ripping on, he's to me, he's the anti, right, Richard Burton, Stephen Boyd. Right. He's the movie star guy who just is this movie star and can't be anything else. He can't tell an honest story because he just can't not be Tom Curtis, the movie star. You know what I mean? I don't know how to explain right. it. He's the, he's the... Yeah, he's Tony Curtis, whatever. He's a legend. Yeah, he's th Nothing yeah, I say is going to change that. He's right. delightful in this. Apparently, the director hated him because of his movie star ego nonsense, but he's very self-deprecating and extremely fun in it, and it, it helps. Him and his co-star have one of these uh, you know, on-screen, off-screen affairs during the film. Their chemistry is very real on-screen. I enjoyed that. But the people that... The two guys that make this film are Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Right. My God in heaven! I ha I've known these guys were partners for a long time. Obviously, they're Joel knows them from being the authors of the famous play "Good Evening," Good evening. which I yep. don't crack a smile in whatsoever when I watch it. I find that totally stupid. But you know, these are guys who are like cabaret performers. They were stage comedy routine dudes. They were the British version of. Uh, Jerry Lewis and um, what's the drunk guy's name? I can't remember. Uh, uh, Dean Martin. Yeah, except uh, except they're super super funny. They're so funny I couldn't stand it. Uh, Peter Cook plays this the major, this stiff upper lip British guy, and mm -hmm. uh, Dudley Moore plays his sidekick Lieutenant Darrington. I think is his name. Holy crap! They're funny. Uh, they are Barring Barrington and Dalish, and they have this they have this kitted out Inspector Gadget like car with all these crazy gizmos and hidden compartments and stuff. It's it, got it. They're every time they're on screen, it is so fun. So really, just for them, just to see two uh, two comic geniuses who, at least in film, didn't cross paths much, and when they did weren't allowed to just be a comic duo because they were always in movies together, even when they were together, that were a little more down-to-earth or had to be... This is... Jaunty Jalopies is a clown show. You know, Bert, mm -hmm. uh, Gert Froby, the German actor, actually says, I have a mind to kick you in your strudelpuss. <laughs> he actually says he's going to kick somebody in the strudelpuss. This is an actual German guy who is being made to say this in a movie. <laughs> for what that 
crosses a line. It crosses a line between cheesy madcap comedy into pure absurdity, and that's where my funny bone gets tickled somehow. So it made yeah. a difference. That's so I'm just funny. saying, fun, widescreen, travelogue, outstanding special effects. This film was directed by Ken Anakin, who made Swiss Family Robinson and uh, some war films and stuff. He's a he's an expert visualist. Uh, there's a scene where the car is, you know, where Curtis's car is teetering off a cliff with the girl climbing around in it, trying to keep it from tipping over and him hanging from the bottom of it. And then to make that even more impossible to look good on screen, they put this ravine with a running river and a waterfall behind him. Water in optical composites, without getting too technical, is impossible. It it looks stupid in Phantom Menace, so they had to cut the waterfall scene in it, basically, from the film, because they just couldn't make it look right. Mm-hmm. This is a rear projection. It's a mix of stuff, and it's, you can tell it's an effect. It doesn't look like he's really hanging from a cliff, but it looks beautiful and magical. It's really fun. Yeah. So it has a lot of those sort of gags in it, too. It's, uh, you know, it's a total throwback story. It's racially inappropriate and it's sort of misogynistic and it in the way everything from that era was but sure i i really really enjoyed it and i really enjoyed peter cook and dudley moore and and they've gone this one movie they've gone from oh yeah those guys to i love them both dearly it just completely changed my i mean i've loved like dudley you know i love him in Mm -hmm. foul play and i love him in other things but I get it now. I get it. Yeah. I've seen them together in this car with the background process going, just doing their stuff, saying whatever comes to their mind, that natural chemistry. Every word out of their mouths is delightful. I, I just, I love it. There's this scene where they have a chase across a hockey game on a frozen lake. Them and the German car are like, and it's just so funny. Uh, Dudley Moore, sir, I think we're mucking up their game. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, it's whatever you know. If they were they were playing, they should be playing something more civilized, like cricket or whatever. You know, it's just yeah. I loved it. So there it's you go. I was stunned uh, to love it because I didn't even like the original, which everyone agrees is superior. Right. But here we are. Um. All right. So uh, next up, you have uh, you have these next three films listed in 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 uh, under oh, a neutral. Category. Yeah. Let's blow through them because I'm yeah. taking too much time with these movies. Right. Great. So uh, I'll just give you all three of these titles, and then you can uh, you can quick uh, talk about them. The Black Windmill. The uh, Michael Caine. That's Michael Caine, where he actually where he actually uh, speaks with his typical accent. Um, yep. He plays a spy whose son gets kidnapped, and he has a s- certain set of skills. So you can imagine how that. Yeah. <laughs> that was not uh, a then, bad movie. Uh, Don Siegel, who directed the uh, the first Dirty Harry and some other rather iconic American films directed it and it's okay but i didn't love it mm-hmm. black windmill uh, with uh, michael Caine. yeah black Min- uh, windmill and then neptune fact the neptune factor oh i should have saved this for the next show because i have a lot to say about neptune factor well, let's neptune factor is a deep sea rescue film that is really cooking along pretty great until you get to the last act and then they in fantastic voyage style they have all these monsters that appear at the bottom of the sea and the monsters are just aquarium fish blown up and put in rear projection process outside the portals of this sub. And it's, 
it it ruins the whole thing. It's weird. Mm. It's too bad. <laughs> but I liked a lot of it, but I, I, I should have known that was going to happen, but I didn't even know. So I was just like, what? And then I went online and I'm like, people are like, yeah, the... Uh, the dentist office fish, you know, outside the windows that are as big as a house, not super effective or scary and really not needed at all in this story. So it kind of ruins the yep. whole thing. Daniel yep. Petrie directed that. It's, yep. uh, and then uh, 1972's The New Centurions. That was a pretty good movie. It was weird. That movie was sold as a movie about cops by a cop, you know, yeah. um, which is was a weird cop worshiping story you know um just with what's going on in the world today in our town and elsewhere it was weird to watch a, a movie like that but george c scott stacy keach um it it reminded me of those early gritty episodes of hill street blues it's really really good it really does get it's a time capsule obviously it's early 70s you know Mm-hmm. But it really does sort of get to the psychology of what these guys were. Stacy Keach plays a law student who's serving time as a cop because he's into criminology. But he's but it's become his, you know, being a police officer has become his sort of addiction. And the rest of his life is sort of going to pot over it. Uh, you know, Scott plays the wise old sage cop who's, you know, about to retire. I should have... I had a mixed reaction to that because it was a weird movie to be watching at this time, but it, that's actually a really good, thoughtful movie. Just really thoughtful compared to what I thought it was going to be. New Centurions. I was I was sort of impressed with it. Interesting. It's uh, a downer. No, it's a super yeah. downer. You know, um, you got pimps and hookers. The black people in the movie are very seventies black exploitation cliches. So there's stuff in it that you just you know yeah. that take it down a peg in my mind. But again. It's not unlike any other films from that era in that way. They're not all... And at the same time, the way the cops view this stuff is interesting in the film, so... Um, okay, you have... Uh, it's uh, not all uh, black and white. <laughs> yep. uh, no yeah. pun intended. You have uh, these next three films uh, lumped together with just a little you know, negative note on here. I hated um, them. Yeah, okay, so The Light at the Edge of the World from Terrible. 71. Yul Brenner plays a pirate who kidnaps the lighthouse at the tip of Argentina at Cape Horn, where Kirk, Kirk, uh, yeah, Douglas Kirk Douglas is one of the guys manning it. And it has this sort of Captain Nemo insanity about it, but it, it for a G-rated movie, it's it's got this bloodbath where they murder this entire passenger ship that comes to shore it's it's done in quick takes and stuff like trying to sort of emulate hitchcock but it's just the implied death is terrible the implied rape is terrible you know jules verne kirk douglas yul brenner right it where at the tip of argentina that sounds interesting you know ugh Bad, bad. I I don't know what Jules' story is. It was it was published posthumously, but the movie is not good. Rated G for good. Next one is the Killer Elite. Peckinpah. Uh, Sam Peckinpah. I'm not a huge Sam Peckinpah fan. Sorry, big time film fans out there. His his characters are a little too just sort of 
outwardly cheesily masculine for me and i have a hard time relating to them wait cheesily masculine and it stars james con what james con and robert duvall right you should yeah. like it because of that i mean that's the draw actually and their yeah. early scenes where they're pals spoiler alert for the killer elite um are actually are good it, it sort of fulfills that promise but when they kind of split sides it's it's uh, it could be worse, you know. The whole middle of mm -hmm. the thing is is Khan rehabbing essentially. That's not what I expected from a film of this type. It it tries to be a sensitive movie, but the elements aren't there to make one. It was remade with uh, Jason Statham a few years ago. It's equally bad. Ah, uh, yeah. There you go. Um, it feels then, like uh, the Jason Statham crappy movie of its era, honestly, when you're watching it. So sure. Uh, all right, and then the um, uh, 1971's Duck You Sucka, or also known as A Fistful of Dynamite. I'm good. <laughs> right. I'm going to. It's funny that Fistful of Dynamite, the ripoff name, is actually the better title than Duck You Sucka. I don't know who that was supposed to sell to. Yeah, Duck it's, You Sucker. And then, it's James um, Coburn's catchphrase in the movie. Mm hmm. Uh, I'll just say it. I'm burying it in the middle of this episode because I don't want the blowback, but I don't like Bernardo Bertolucci and I do not like Sergio Leone. Period. All right. I can say that officially now. This film was the final nail in the Sergio Leone copy. I know, Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America. This Good, was, the bad, um, and the ugly, title, blah, blah, blah. Another title for this one was Once Upon a Time, The Revolution. <laughs> My God in heaven. Well... <laughs> It, it's an accomplished film. Uh, Sergio is a, a brilliant filmmaker when it comes to the work that he does behind the camera, but I'm not into that stuff. I'm Italian guys. I'm sorry. You, if your main character like rapes somebody at some point, I'm, I'm off team, whoever that guy is, you know, and that's a thing where I think I really don't think that's the sexual policy politics of the seventies or of the whatever, Mexican Revolution. It you, you can't. Robert De Niro rapes Elizabeth McGovern in Once Upon a Time in America, and then it's just back to the movie. I just how how is that remotely acceptable? <laughs> I mean, maybe okay, your guy's a rapist, but how am I supposed to accept him as anything but a rapist at a certain point? I I, I can't. I guess that's where I draw the line. You know, I, I can handle the hookers and I can handle the parade of worthless female secretaries in these films that are, you know, they're not very nuanced. They're, they're not a lot of women in them. And when they are, the women aren't, you know, they're not like the women I grew up with and know today who I would not mess about with. And that's weird, but it's kind of like you have to accept that when you're watching old movies. I don't have to accept rape, period. I don't have to accept it. You guys can go to hell. Seriously, Bernardo Bertolucci. Le Leone's dead, but Bertolucci can just bite it. I, I hate that yeah. crap. I hate it. Uh, and I yeah. and I just saying it out loud. So there you go. Well, there you go. Um, all right. Uh, so then next up. Um, oh, well, then we get, you know, so two. These are two actually kind of classic, uh, classic movies. Um, uh, they shoot horses, don't they? This, if if Scarecrow is not the best movie on this list, this is the best movie. I yeah. knew what this movie was. I Obviously, the name is iconic, the name alone. I'm yeah. a big Sidney Pollock fan, but this is another film where it's this Panavision film. It's this super widescreen, tricky visual film, and I just kind of refuse to watch it because 
I didn't, you know, first off, I didn't watch it when I was a kid, when I, which I could have, I would have accepted whatever. And then when I didn't, when I became a film fan, I just sort of refused to watch it in some super compromised way. It finally came out again in high definition just recently. This, this movie, this movie's amazing movie. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. They shoot horses, don't they? It's maybe Pollock's best film. It, it It's about this grueling, terrible depression era dance contest. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, it's based on a very famous novel and it is sort of a met, it's a metaphor and an allegory for all this stuff. There's all this extra weight lifted on it, but just the, just the nature of the thing. What the tagline for the movie was people are the greatest spectacle or is that it? What it is? Uh, people are yeah, the people are the ultimate spectacle. It's a dance contest with, that goes on like for days weird, and days yeah, and with days. This disco, this weird disco ball with people with agonized faces of people, uh, sort of in, in this disco. Jane, ball. Jane Fonda stars in it, but there are people that I know that in it that it just blew my mind. Jane Fonda's great in it, as you would expect. Yep. Uh, um, Jane, Bonnie Jane Bedelia Fonda. is amazing in it. It's, it's, if it's not her first movie, it's one of her first movies. There's a scene where Bonnie Bedelia, after days of exhaustion, she's pregnant in the movie in this dance contest. It's which is a visual stunt, but it's a really affecting one. It really is disturbing. Um, where she's standing, disheveled, sweaty, exhausted, and with this tiny little voice is singing, uh, "Some of the best things in life are free." up on the stage and the people in the crowd are all oh isn't that adorable and you're just like my god get this woman to a there are these weird nurses and medics like off to the side as soon as somebody mm-hmm. collapsed to deal with them it's it's an absolute freak show of a film and yet i just don't i don't know how to describe it honestly without sort of ruining everything there are moments in it that i was stunned by Susanna york uh, who's been in lots of costume dramas and stuff, British actors, most famous mm-hmm. for playing Superman's mom in 1978. She's had a long history with the, those producers, the Salkinds. She plays this wannabe actress, you know, with the kind of Marilyn Monroe wig. And her, her performance just blew my mind. <laughs> it just yeah. blew my mind. I've never... Susanna's always been this polite sort of English lady that I would see in these things. And it's always her kind of curly hair. She's... She, her hair is different and everything, but it's always like the, her most defining characteristic. If you think of her red, super curly hair in Superman, that's an example. Mm-hmm. And I read this bit of trivia. I actually heard Richard Donner tell it out of his own voice. There's the scene in Superman where, where Marlon Brando's, I bequeath you these things and to the son, the father, and the father, the son. And Sometime during a coffee break, she mm-hmm. went up to Donner and she's like, so from the son, the father, and the father of the son, what was the mother bequeath him? The mother bequeaths him dick. <laughs> and I can't imagine the woman saying this. I just can't imagine it. But I, I believe it now. I've seen something different in Susanna, who I always liked. She's just, it's just an incredible film. It's just, it's an amazing yeah. movie. It's. Yeah. I yeah, I only gave it eight out of ten stars on my ten star scale because there are things in it that I think, from an allegory standpoint, go too far and remove it from what could have been an amazing sort of human story. I think those things are right out of the book. 
I think you have to have them, so I'm not begrudging the film for those, but they made me go. The film's culmination, even for a film of this type, is a little much for me. You know, I get it, but I kind of don't get it. So, yeah. But that's no reason to not see it in in widescreen. It, it, it's incredible. Apparently, Pollock was on like roller skates, zooming around between in the dance floor between these people. The promoter of the thing comes up with this idea that at the end of every day they have to have this race, a derby, where they just mm-hmm. run around the track once, and then the last mm-hmm. three couples who don't finish the race are eliminated. Those sequences are. Uh, just they uh, they're just incredible the backstage talks and stuff fonda's very very special in it It says not my favorite movie of hers but it's probably my second favorite so that should tell you something i'm in a way i'm sad that i hadn't seen this sooner but in a way i'm just delighted that i got to see a movie of this caliber at this point yeah, I look forward to seeing it in its, you know, in its full scope. And that'll be it visually, it's an incredible film. Yeah, and it's um, too bad because Pollock abandoned uh, CinemaScope in the late seventies because he got sick of seeing his movies on TV and stuff just look like ass. A uh, Spielberg did to a certain degree too in the eighties. Although he started making slightly different kinds of movies in the eighties too, that was part yeah. of the reason. But you know, Out of Africa should have been in scope right i mean come on right and it wasn't because he just like and he even said he's gone now god rest him he was a fantastic filmmaker he even said i kind of wish at least on some of these i did it that way because they'd been and these days you can watch stuff that way it really helps a lot so Mm -hmm. um they shoot horses don't they i couldn't be more impressed and then uh yeah then three years later 1972 uh another sydney pollock uh, a movie probably best known, sad maybe sadly, yeah. best known for it's okay. a fantastic gif and meme <laughs> of, of bearded Robert Redford. Robert Redford slowly nodding as the camera yeah. zoomed in on him. Yeah, <laughs> literally <laughs> the culmination dude. of the happiest moment in an extremely depressing film, <laughs> which is funny yeah, because movie. that makes it seem like everything's great you know but yep. and it yep. is for about six <laughs> minutes of screen time um uh, the movie's called jeremiah johnson yeah and it for those yeah. of you who are our age it's really the story of grizzly adams grizzly adams sort of right. stole this story it's it's not about a fugitive but it's about a guy who's wants to go out live off the land wants to trap animals want it is is seduced by the magic of the wild frontier and then the reality of that frontier is harsh and incredible it 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 was filmed largely although it was filmed all over utah and part part of new mexico it was filmed largely on the 600 acres of utah that um redford bought right after butch cassidy and the sundance kid with his money um so there's a love affair between him and the land and the idea of this story. And he plays a character that he would be, he would become later in his career reluctant to play. He, he liked to play principled guys and he liked to let his sort of inner morality come out through the characters. Even if they were compromised in some way, he, he, he really gravitated towards wise characters. And this dude is off his rocker. He's not prepared to face anything that he faces. And when he faces the worst things you can face, he responds in kind. And it's, so it's a really different kind of role to see him in, but it's, 
it's winter in Utah. That's the star of the thing. Yeah. Holy cow. Again, just visually, the widescreen vistas, the mountains, the snow, you feel your toes get cold, even if you watch this in July while you're watching it. Um, it's loaded up with lots of great actors. Will Gear, um, Paul Benedict, who I always like. Um, yeah, just guy after guy of all these mm. crazy characters that he meets on his journey. The film, they said, is structured like a long climb up the mountain and then a descent down the other side. And it that's that's not just a metaphor for how it's structured. That's sort of what the dramatic structure of things looks like. But but it it you feel that that trudge and stuff and then sort of a, a breaking point. It's mm-hmm. it's really good. Jeremiah Johnson is it is known as being kind of a cheesy movie like that because it's part of that uh, mountain man cycle of films that came out all around that era yeah. and the gif hasn't helped because that gif is really <laughs> cheesy it's at the end of a montage it's the final <laughs> shot at the end of a yep. of a happy montage and but the it doesn't prepare yep. you for what the film is it's really yep. really good redford did just knock knock me out in it. I, I love it. I had seen this a long time ago, but again, seeing it in high definition, seeing all the details, the trees, the, the, the holes and the patching in the interior of these cabins, you know, the fabrics that they wear on their ponchos and stuff. I mean, it, it just beautiful. Yeah. The lack of color. So that when you see a color, like you see the color red or you see something, that jumps out at you in the wilderness it's 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 really really cool the animals are cool it's i quite liked it well very yeah i i i I dig jeremiah johnson too yeah Uh, all right next up 1972 the crime comedy drama directed by peter yates how to steal a diamond and four uneasy lessons written by william goldman right oh yeah i'm seeing that here two guys Um, i used to get up mixed up not the names the guys at least from this era mm -hmm. as they got older they got they diverged and got very different but were ron liebman and george seagal uh george who we just lost recently ron liebman i don't know he played jennifer aniston's dad on friends he's not a guy that i can just pull something out and say he doesn't have a signature character but he plays this thug in this film is so fun there's a scene where they're the it's it's a caper. The tagline was like, um, "When they stole this diamond, they didn't know they were going to have to steal it again, or something like that." It's it's got a very fun heist like structure to it. Redford is very at his breezy and charming best in it. Seagal, Liebman, and I can't remember the other actor's name, but they're the, his crew, and they're great. They feel yeah, like Seagal, Liebman and Paul Sand. Paul Sand. They they're great New Yorkers. You know what I mean. That authenticity is right there. Goldman's script is snappy. Goldman obviously wrote Misery, wrote Princess Bride, wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, wrote all kinds of stuff. Wrote uh, wrote um, all the President's Men. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, all the President. No. Yes, he did. He did mm-hmm. this. Adapted the script for that. Um, yeah. It it's. It's it's really fun film. It's a fun caper movie that I didn't know anything about because it wasn't a big hit. Um, just to give you a, 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 a I, example, I should also I was, real quick say it's actually in America. It's known as the Hot Rock. The Hot Rock. Yeah. What'd you call it? I called it by its UK title, 
how to steal a diamond in four uneasy lessons. <laughs> that's not that's a that's not as cool a title as the Hot Rock, but it, yeah. it's that's not a bad title actually. It's that's very British, and the movie is not British, very yeah. British, but whatever. I get it. Um, yeah, there's a scene where they where at some point in the movie, one of the guys, Paul Sands' character, like uh, has the diamond on him while after he's been arrested and he's about to go to jail and he, he's in the police precinct and he has to hide it. There's nothing he can do. He's got to, mm-hmm. it's going to be discovered if he keeps it. So he hides it. So the last part of the heist, it's a multi-part heist as the, as the British title suggests, is they're going to land a, a helicopter on top of the police precinct and break into it and get the diamond out. And Ron Liebman lands the helicopter like on the wrong building. <laughs> it's really funny, and they and they they got to ask for directions from these janitors who are up having a smoke on the roof of this building to get to the precinct. Uh, you know, nice. it's it's full of stuff like that. That was a fun film, so check it out. The Hot Rock, very fun. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, Day of the Dolphin in nineteen seventy three. George. Oh, uh, Fa Love Pa. Fa and Ba love Pa and Ma. If that That's doesn't good. melt your heart, I don't know mm-hmm. what will. Um, George C. Scott plays a scientist in the Caribbean who's teaching uh, dolphins how to talk. and talk, To speak English. Um, yeah, that is as dumb as it says. It's written by Buck Henry. It's directed by Mike Nichols. This is the team that brought you The Graduate. Um and some shady government agency kidnaps the dolphins to t- retrain them to put p- uh, plastic explosive, basically underwater mines on the bottom of yachts owned by guys from foreign countries that they don't like. The tagline on this poster is, unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States. <laughs> And it's a very serious looking George. It's a very serious movie. So the only joy you're going to get out of it in terms of comedy is just that absurd idea. And the key to liking Day of the Dolphin, and I like it quite a bit. Again, it's a beautiful widescreen movie shot on the ocean. The dolphins are, if you like dolphins, the dolphins are magical. George C. Scott never, ever, and never in any movie ever. Even uh, Dr. Strangelove, you never will ever catch George winking at the camera, ever. He buys into what he is doing 100% whatever project he takes. And that helps. Mm -hmm. It helps because if this film was... You feel like Buck Henry, when he wrote it, was putting everybody on. I mean, he's a noted comedic writer, but the film is deadly serious sort of 70s conspiracy film involving dolphins. I liked it when I was a kid. I, I just watched it now and all its, uh, you know, like I said, widescreen, high-definition glory. It's even better that way. Wow. It's not for everybody. It's a much ridiculed film because the story is bonkers. But <laughs> but I love it. The, the, yeah. the, the, the dolphins are named Alpha and Beta or because the, that's hard for them to say. Yeah. It's much easier for them to speak... Um, single uh, and syllable and words they're called fa and ba fa actually names beta ba and fa loves pa pa's is uh is george c george scott c. and scott, ma yeah. is his real life um trish van deer his real life uh wife who was shared the screen with him in a lot and she's 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 mostly known for being the sidekick to George C. Scott and things; those are her biggest films. But 
she's a good actor. Um, the kids in it, you know, like my, like, uh, um, Herman, what's his name? Um, give me a second. Uh, it, it, it's it. populated with a bunch of young hippie like scientist people who mm. grew into old character actors yeah, that Edward are kind of great yeah Edward Herman Edward Herman he's great in it uh, Paul Servino is really really good in it so mm -hmm. it's a I it, it is an absurd idea and it is exactly what it, it as one reviewer said it is as stupid as it sounds but there's still something about it that I can't deny that draws yeah. me in uh, next up, Dolphins being capable of human love and being a capable to express it on screen is exciting to me. Maybe I'll call me a softy. Uh, well, at least a dolphin softy. Um, yeah. all right. I'll take it next over, up. uh, the last emperor any day, Bernardo Bertolucci, bastard. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, next up is, uh, the, um, Prince and the Popper, or as it was released in the U S crossed swords. Why didn't they call it Prince and the Popper? That's only a famous Mark Twain story. What on earth were they thinking? Yeah. That I'm convinced. That now, this movie's not very good. This is the Alexander Salkinds that produced... Uh, at the time, they were most famous for producing uh, the Three Musketeers films with Oliver Reed and Charlton mm -hmm. Heston and Michael York. Uh, remember our professor and advisor, uh, Jim. I won't use his last name because he's not... He didn't give us permission to in the show, but really one of the all-time great guys in the universe, truly. But he mm. really he's a he's a he's a total no offense to him, but he's a total like die in the wool baby boomer, basically. And so this era of films would have special meaning for him. Mm -hmm. He was a huge fan of those Musketeers films. They're directed yeah, yeah. by Dick Lester, who also made Hard Day's Night, which is an important thing to baby boomers as well. Um I find I I'm a I'm not a huge Dick Lester or Alexander Salkind or Pierre Star Spangled Spangler fan, so I tend to prefer Alexander Dumas. And I think if you're a big Dumas fan, their version of that story is insulting. Almost, it's just <laughs> yeah. one sight gag and visual nutso thing after another. It never slows down for people to talk to each other. The characters are vivid, but they're not believable this film is not directed by dick lester it's directed by richard fleischer who's a better i think a more serious cinema director maybe a little less fun but I, I thought that would help this it doesn't really prince and the poppers the story of uh henry the eighth's son with is it with I'm sorry. I just am seeing the tagline on the poster. Right Go ahead. Now. I'll share. I'll share. Well, I'll share it in a minute. All right. Um, um, it's the story of the young prince heir to the throne of England who bumps yeah, into Edward. a beggar on the street that looks just like him, and as a joke, they decide to switch places for the day. But then they th things conspire to happen where they really get stuck in their alternative worlds, and mm -hmm. that's not good for anybody, as it turns out. So go ahead. Um, the, the tag on this is see Oliver Reed cross his eyes. See Raquel Welch cross her legs. See Mark Lester cross his fingers. See Ernest Borgnine cross his heart. And see George C. Scott, Rex Harrison, David Hemmings, and Charlton Heston get double crossed. See the biggest cross up of them all cross, cross swords. swords. 
If it were named Prince and the Popper instead of Cross Swords, we'd be saying this is pretty much the best filmed version yeah. of Prince and the Popper. And in yeah. that way, it has some value. Um, but oh, they went man. in a different direction. That so it, it's happy. not no, it's not even, it wasn't even clear to me when I put it in that that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it starts out with this Mark Twain thing. And I'm like, Mark Twain? <laughs> right. What the hell? And then I, you know, I got caught up basically but it it, it's it's if you liked those three musketeers films if you like that sort of goofy adventure mixed with a lot of visual comedy you might you might enjoy this it's pretty well made i have to say the kid uh mark lester um who's most famous for playing oliver in the academy award-winning oliver exclamation point the musical version of oliver stopped acting after this movie because he got so much criticism especially at home in england for mm. it sucking because of him <laughs> like you know we talked about how the press can just be awful yeah. he got like he was you know and it's in england it's tough because they don't really hate you completely unless they've loved you a little bit so it's this roller coaster ride where you go from being the most popular little boy in all of England and every role like this is yours. And then suddenly they just turn on you like vipers and ruin your life. <laughs> so it's a sad story because of that, but the story itself is rather breezy and kind of fun. Um, all right. So next up we have a couple movies uh, by uh, auteur filmmaker, um, Robert Altman. Yeah. Um, and very, how very... I although I I I never hated on Robert Altman like I might hate somebody like Bernardo Bertolucci for example but yeah. I'm not a <laughs> you know me I'm not I'm well, kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean well to, yeah to me sometimes I don't like Altman... Mash I really didn't like the yeah. player even when it was new I didn't like Predaporter or Shortcuts like I I really thought I didn't like him at all. I didn't. I finally watched Nashville because everybody said, "Well, you got to at least see Nashville." I didn't hate Nashville, but I didn't love Nashville. So right. I've always thought I'm not a Robert Altman fan. You know, it's, he's a very, uh, a very uh, uh, um, distinct filmmaker. He has yeah. his style. There is the Altman style, um, and in and it's uh, not his style that I actually object to. It's it's when the point of view in the movie overwhelms any sense of a human story. And I just feel like mm -hmm. a lot of his movies, like that's a danger that happens in all of them. It almost happens in these two, but these yeah, yeah. two Joel that we're about to talk about are the best Robert Altman films I've ever seen. I was, I was kind of enraptured with both of them for different reasons. Uh, the first one was, the Long Goodbye. Not an Elliot Gould fan either, I gotta say. I don't dislike him, but it's the yeah. same problem. He's very superficial performer, and even though he's extremely entertaining, and he really is, it it's hard to be like, you know, who are you? You know what I mean? You, mm -hmm. it, it's, like a, it's like watching a stand-up comedian for two hours. Right. Yeah, the oh, Long yeah, Goodbye, yeah, based on Philip Marlowe, or, or Philip Marlowe, sorry, is the character in it, the private uh, Raymond dick. Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler? Yeah, Raymond yeah, Chandler. Yeah, Raymond Chandler, um, you know, who wrote these great private detective, like, 50s, post-World War II stories. Mm -hmm. And Altman, everything, he, every decision he made creatively on this film uh, was a, got knocked out of the park, was a home run. The first one was, we're going to set this in the present day, 
And this guy's going to be a throwback 50s private detective who nevertheless is living in a brutal, awful, early 70s, basically American Depression era world. Yeah. And that incongruity in each scene is going to create all this tension without even having to fake any sort of dramatic histrionics. And it works like gangbusters. Gould disappears into this guy. He gets that the guy is clever. He he nails his funny one-liners when he has them. But he gets that the guy is fundamentally a loser and content to be to some degree. Mm-hmm. And that's sympathetic in a way. He's just trying to unravel this, sleuth out this ridiculous story and he just keeps through bad luck, you know, like actually solving each little bit of it. It's it's it kind of falls into the solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really strong. Sterling Hayden, another actor I'm not real crazy about, he's fantastic in it. Apparently, he just showed up on screen and made up everything that he said. And <laughs> Gould again was a big enough guy to be like, all right, if that's how we're gonna do it, rolls with it. Let's Hayden take stage, you know. It, that it's fun. Um, and Mark Rydell, the filmmaker who we were talking about earlier used to be an actor, kind of a kid actor. And when he got older, he's like, nobody wants, nobody wants the baby faced, you know, whatever. Like, I'm not going to be a leading man. I'm not going to get to play any cool bad guys. What am I going to do? I'm going to be the doctor who explains to some more famous actor, like what's going on with his patient. That's, that's my lot in life. So he got behind the camera he plays a bad guy in this that's as bad and big a dick as I've ever seen, and yet he brings a lot of uh, charisma to it that's mm-hmm. undeniable. Um, and the same thing, he was roommates at the time with a screenwriter. I can't remember the guy's name, but a, a accomplished screenwriter of the day. And they ba- he basically told... Um, Told, uh, who's the filmmaker again? Jeez, my uh, Robert Altman. Yeah, Altman. Told Altman that he was yeah. going to, he'll, he'd consider doing it, coming out of retirement to do it, but he wanted to, he wanted to make it into something different. And Altman said, sure, show me what you got. And they went away and over the weekend wrote, rewrote all the scenes that he appears in, came back to Altman and said, here's what we got. And he goes, he loved it. He's like, we're putting it in. I'm putting it all in. You're, you're on board. And Rydell's quote was, you know, that was Robert, especially at that time. He didn't really care about mm-hmm. anything as long as everybody was giving it their best. And that's a really cool guy to work for. I loved The Long Goodbye. Uh, Brian yeah. Bevel, who we had on the, our anniversary show and on our uh, Gangster Movies in the 90s show, he, at some point when I was ranting against Altman, he, he said, yeah, you should probably check out The Long Goodbye, you know? And I was like, okay. Because yeah. it's not an ensemble comedy. It, it's it's yeah. uh it really is a genre film that he just he just hits out of the park. Um, and a, a fun bit of trivia that I thought was fun that you remember that cat that would only eat the one kind of cat food growing up in all those TV commercials when we were a kid. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was Fancy Feast or what it was, but the cat had a name whose name I can't remember. Morris. They were all, Morris, Morris, and they're the all cat. like, "Oh, yep. you know, he's finicky, right?" That was the word they were always using. Morris the cat, the same cat, actually appears in the opening one shot tracking shot through 
Gould's apartment in this where he's looking for cat food and he doesn't have any. He tries making it eggs. He tries all this stuff to get the cat to leave him the hell alone. And mm -hmm. eventually he goes on this tour of early 70s L.A. to all these different grocery stores because they don't have the cat food that his cat likes. That's how the movie begins. And it's the same cat. Apparently that ad campaign was inspired by the opening of this film, which I found to be a nifty bit of trivia. Because the sequence, a relationship between a man and his cat, or a woman and his cat, is a thing that's hard to fake, I think, in a Hollywood way. And this, the cat is, first of all, again, Gould sharing screen time with a cat, and he understand he quickly gets that the cat is the star. The cat's going to yeah, do yeah. whatever the hell it wants. And he's just got to let it do its thing and then respond to it. It's a brilliant sequence, magical yeah, I, movie sequence, I, I, I think. I can't remember if The Long Goodbye was the first Altman film or if MASH was my first Altman film. Uh, but I, yeah, I haven't seen it in a very long time. But um, yeah. I, so I good. Really wow. Uh, next up is Altman's uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians. Now, here's this is Altman in his. This is his thing. It's this massive ensemble movie about the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows and how Buffalo mm -hmm. Bill convinced Sitting Bull, who's still alive, to come on the show so they can act out these the you know the famous battles that Sitting Bull was involved in. And it's called uh, yeah uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians or Sitting Bull's oh, history yeah, lesson. Sitting Bull's history, yeah, or Sitting Bull's history. It lesson. has a what's that called? The melodrama title with the long title. I can't remember what that mm. is, but that has or in it. Right. Um, anyway, it it's it's uh, it's outstanding. Paul, it helps. Paul Newman is such a soulful and amazing guy. This is another movie where Paul Newman was asked what his favorite performance was, and he couldn't narrow it down. But he named three films. Uh, Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, mm -hmm. um, Buffalo Bill and the Indians, and Slapshot, which are not his... I mean, they're great performances, but they weren't Oscar-nominated. You know, he won Oscars and stuff. They're, yeah. they're just not the movies you'd think he'd peg. He didn't say they were his best movies. He said they were his favorite performances. That was the term that he used. Paul Newman is... Man, he just there's just aren't there aren't any like him. He just was the best ever. He really is on the short list of mine for best actor ever. Best American actor maybe. Yeah. But on the best actor ever. He's so good and he's so good in this. His Buffalo Bill, you know, the greatest buffaloer of all time. This guy who's famous for just murdering buffalo from a train <laughs> for no reason yeah, yeah. and it causing the extinction of a species practically. And he was celebrated for that. And these Wild West shows are hilarious. You've got um, Geraldine Chaplin as Annie Oakley. Annie Oakley. You've got uh, Harvey Keitel is in it. Joel Gray. Yep. God, we love Joel Gray. Yep, Jer Joel Gray. Burt Lancaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Shelley Duvall and Pat McCormick show up as yep. Mr. Mr. Grover Cleveland and Mrs. Grover Cleveland. Yep. <laughs> and Shelley Duvall yep. and Robert Altman film is always welcome. You know, she's amazing. Um and Will Sampson, Sitting Bull never utters a word in the film, but Will Sampson, one of the more famous Native American actors of all time, from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at all, plays his interpreter, So, and eventually replaces him in the show, which is a, yeah. it's just a gutting, heartbreaking thing when it happens. Um, 
That's a really, really cool movie. Really cool piece of history. The spectacle of the show was amazing. It was released during the bicentennial, and it was called yeah. a it was called a scathing reaction to the bicentennial or whatever. But to me, it's a, what I love about it, and what I don't love about a lot of Altman's films is that it isn't that. It's just deeply human story about these mm-hmm. sensitive, ultimately people and guilt and shame and and you know uh, and they altman wanted marlon brando for it and marlon brando's interested in cowboys and stuff and was excited but where he lost him to go along with your olivia hussey story where altman lost brando he goes oh and i want a big star because the movie to a certain degree is about stardom and brando was like "Mm, hung up the phone on him um but they got the right guy Uh, newman in his Diggs looks like Bill Cody. Looks a lot like him, and re- really nails the the complicated emotional stuff later in the film. I liked it a lot. Very so cool. Robert Altman, I've I've actually never seen this one, so I'll have to check this one you, out. You overnight, you just mm-hmm. it increased my esteem quite a bit. So I I'm grateful for that. Um. All right. Two more films in this in our uh, sounds of the seventies or sights of the seventies, I guess we could be. Um, but yeah, uh, the taking the to original, really work at, at their best, it, you need both the sights and sounds Correct. of the seventies celebration. Yes. Um, the the original taking of Pelham one two three. Yeah, and let's end with this one since we're about running out of time, and we'll save Great. the next one for next week's show. Because the, taking a Pelham one two three is a great way to end the show. Uh, right. It's it's super seventies. It takes place in the seventies. It captures the wide tie sort of fast talking New York working class atmosphere. It's a fantastic caper, all a Die Hard where you've got a bunch of hostages in a confined space. It's sort of mm-hmm. it's it's the first movie I remember that really gets that in a high concept sort of way. It's about a bunch of guys who all use colors for names. Quentin, does that ring any bells? Mm-hmm. Um, who kidnap a New York subway train uh, and hold the people on it hostage for a million dollars. I wanted to say for $400. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> When Tony Scott and Denzel Washington remade um, Taking a Pelham 123 in, in the 2000s, they had to up it, obviously, to $10 million because a million dollars just doesn't sound worth it anymore. Right. Um, I like to joke, that, man, I feel like $100 today because <laughs> it's, it's funny to me. Um, whenever you define yourself by money, adjust it ahead of time for inflation, I guess is what right. I'm saying. Uh, Robert Shaw, Martin Balsam, Hector Elizondo. I'm not going to name all the bad guys, but that level of talent in this kind of role is extremely welcome thing. All of the extras, all the hostages have these unique personalities that come to life vividly on screen. All the working class transit cops and the mayor Martin or Walter Matthau is kind of the star of it. Yep. Uh, it's, but there's more Jerry Stiller. Um, there's another great actor in those Tony Roberts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's great. It's sort of the ultimate grungy early 70s ghetto style film. And yet it has this, like I said, it has this high concept terrorism, however you want to put it, 
um, hostage negotiating situation. And Mathau is, he's taking this, you know, Mathau is a fantastic actor, but he is a little hit or miss. It's hard to know his take on a character is going to be broad, pretty much whatever he does. So you never know if you're going to get a serious version of him or not. This movie has tons of comedy in it, but he, mm-hmm. like like Scott in Day of the Dolphin, he really plays it straight, and that helps a lot. It helps sell the reality of the situation. Matthew Broderick's dad plays the train conductor. It's kind of fun because they... It's not one of those things where he looks like Matthew Broderick, but he kind of looks a little like him, and because he sounds like him, like you're like... They've got to be related or whatever. And then yeah. I look it up, and sure enough, our favorite, one of our favorite New Yorkers, I guess J.O. Sanders is technically our favorite New Yorker, but yeah. uh, we like Broderick a lot. It it's Yeah, and Broderick wants that number one spot. He can always come on the show. This is a movie, again, that's very famous. I don't think I'm pulling a, a veil off of something that's been underappreciated. It's got a perfect... Right. For those of you who give a crap, it's got a perfect Rotten Tomatoes rating. And we've talked about Rotten Tomatoes before, and it, it the reason to bring it up with this, because normally I like to not bring it up, is you, there's nobody who's going to watch this movie that doesn't think it's good. That's how you get a perfect Rotten Tomatoes movie. Mm-hmm. Not by making the greatest movie ever, but by making one that everybody can literally agree on its positivity or negativity. That's how you get the right. 100% or the 0%. Uh, and this, this film, it, I agree. It's like, how could you watch this and not think it's great? It's really, really great. It's really, yeah, it's it's really exciting. Great. It's very clever. It has moments of humor, moments of action. Um, really good, yeah, really good pacing in it. Um, yeah. Really, really well done. Who directed Taking a Pelham 123 originally? Uh, it was uh, Joseph Sargent. His best film. Joseph Sargent's a good director, but he, he's also made a kind of bunch of dumb ones. Jaws 4, we kind of talked about at the end of his career. Um, but he's a good director. This is his best movie. It's 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 based on a book, which is probably a pretty breezy, great read. Um, yeah. I loved it. So there you go. Well, there you go. All right. Well, folks, that is going to do it for part one of our celebration of the 70s. That's right. We're going to hit you back next week. A little bit of part two of the sound and sights of the 70s. Here we go now. We're going to have a party. That's right. A 70s party. Inviting all our friends. That means you are invited next week. We're going to have a good time talking more about some films from the 1970s. And 69. And and, and then the 60s. And a couple in the 60s. It'll be a little bit of the I think they were all 69. So I think we stuck to our promise there. Indeed. Yeah, no, we didn't uh, We didn't dip back any further. 80s didn't really start until Thriller either, you know. Uh, I would I would concur with that. I think that's pretty. I mean, it, it we got hints, but it was mostly just the seventies still. So right. See, for me, for me, it's um, no, no, Thriller's pretty accurate. Kind of Christmas eighty two. Yeah, and then the songs um, on the radio in eighty three are eighties. All of them, you couldn't yeah. mistake them for seventy songs. That's true. Um, all right, folks. Well, that is going to do it for us for this week. We um, love y'all. We, hope we, we hope we brought some cool things to light and just absolutely. reiterated some things that are awesome. Yeah, come and check out uh, part two next week. We will have some more uh, super fun 
um, sexy 70s action. Yeah. And um, all right. That is going to do it for us on the movie show with Joel and Ryan. Take care, everybody. Uh, Bye. Bye, everybody. Here's an awesome song from the 80s by the producers called She Sheila. We think it's the coolest song ever. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out. <laughs>